Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Future of Application Security. Today, I have Prajakta Bade with me. Prajakta, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. So, everyone, Prajakta today is acting as a head of product security at Origami Risk. Prajakta, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit more and maybe talk about what you do at Origami Risk? What does product security mean there? Yeah. So like you said, I'm leading product security at Origami Risk, which is based in Chicago. We are headquartered in Chicago. And we are a cloud-based platform designed specifically for risk, claims, policy, and safety management. So we provide integrated SaaS solutions that is highly configurable for the risk and insurance industry. So anyone from insured and uh, corporate and public entities, brokers, insurers, TPAs can use origami risk. We cater to various sectors within the risk and insurance marketplace, and that includes healthcare, construction, insurance carriers, risk pools, retail, manufacturing, and the list goes on. And if I have to give you an example, if you are a construction company and you have a large pool of workforce to manage, you can use our platform to manage uh, workers' compensation or environmental health and safety workflows, or even insurance policies, claims, and the like. Got it. The company was founded in 2009, and since then it has been growing rapidly. And I joined Origami last year in November, and me and my team are responsible for the security of Origami Risk Platform. And that includes web and mobile applications, the backend that supports it, secure design and architecture practices, penetration testing, threat modeling, developer training, and vulnerability management. And prior to joining Origami, I was leading a team of penetration testers at Norton LifeLock. Our focus was on product security, but testing the product security. Right. Now, so one of the things that we were talking about before starting this podcast, Rajakta, was your unique background. And you started your career outside of security, but eventually you entered the cybersecurity workforce. Now, maybe talk a little bit about where you started your professional career and what motivated you to get into cyber and how did you actually get in? Sure. So I started off in quality assurance. So when I graduated from college, I took on a role of becoming a quality assurance engineer and then took on various roles within that industry before actually moving to security. But however, as a quality assurance engineer, when I was testing the applications, I would test for, you know, simple things like can I test for SQL injection or input validation. And all of these areas were unbeknownst to me were related to security. I had just learned about those test cases, perhaps from my peers or reading somewhere or blogs or YouTube videos and things like that. So it was not a methodical penetration testing exercise, but I would just give it a shot and you know test application and see if I can find something interesting. And that's actually how I got curious about security. I started reading more about it, did some certifications, read some newsletters, 
you know, asked some networks, peers, how do I actually get into security or what should I do? What is my jumping point? I also did my master's degree in cybersecurity policy and compliance from the George Washington University. And that's how here I am uh, at Origamidas leading product security. That's amazing. That's a good way. So you started doing some security work, even though it was not a security specific role, and Mm -hmm. then complemented your skills with certificates, degrees, formal education in that space. Fantastic. So you spent quite some time at Norton LifeLock managing AppSec, pen testing, just uh, cyber security engineering. And then now you're running product security at Oricam Risk. Now, tell me a little bit about what do you mean by product security and how is it different than, you know, the first generation definition of application security? Yeah, so in my definition, the two are two different distinct pillars of security. Some people try to mix it, AppSec slash BardSec, but for me, they are two different pillars. And by AppSec, by definition, I mean that focus on, you know, your applications, testing, vulnerability scanning, and the focus is primarily on the front-end applications or, you know, your APIs or maybe your web servers or application servers. However, in product security, it's a mix of all. So it's literally the amalgamation of different activities that happen during your SDLC cycle. So it's literally starting from your architecture design or even planning phase, architecture design, writing code, your build deployment process, your orchestration tools, how you deploy to you know production, and how do you actually monitor after you deploy? What are your vulnerability management practices? How do you manage risk? All of this comes under product security. So then that's how I take product and app security differently. Nice. Yeah, that's good to know because I've seen sort of similar definition across a few other teams, like few other guests have been on this podcast where they were talking about a similar definition where it's beyond just the software. It's also how the software is built, where it is deployed, what the artifacts are, whether it's a a container or some sort of other artifact running in a cloud environment, even cloud configurations, all of those things become sort of your full stack security engineer, I guess. So what does it actually mean in terms of the types of people you hire? So now is that, do you train them differently? Do you hire for different skill sets? Because now you're looking at, you know, potentially cloud skills and Terraform skills or AWS skills and also, you know, JavaScript or Java or whatever your tech stack is, like skills for that. Those are two very different things. How do you staff a team for product security? I think product security is a mix of all. You don't have to be a developer yourself. So, you know, if you don't know how to write code, that's fine. But you should be able to at least understand the full life cycle a product goes into. So you should be able to understand how the product is built or how it is coded and how it is compiled, how it actually fits into your CI-CD pipeline. How does the CI-CD pipeline looks like? Who runs it? How frequent it is run? When it is deployed? And when it's deployed, what does it mean? Is it like a file just being dropped on a web server? What happens uh, during the deployment phase? So all of those, all of this life cycle is important and you should have ability to understand this whole life cycle. So you don't have to be a a developer by heart or somebody who has written code for years, but be able to understand. And with infrastructure as code, right, this meaning of writing code is new now. (laughs) You have to understand how infrastructure is built. You have to understand how, for example, a cloud resource works, 
along with your piece of code. And that information is critical for your success. And that's where I, I look at ideally an all-rounder, to be fairly honest with you, somebody who can understand network and the code part of it would be the ideal candidate. For AppSec, it's more on the execution side or operation side or somebody who can actually understand the application, test the application, run scanners. So you really don't need the insights of the whole life cycle many times. So that's how I differentiate the skill set. So when I'm hiring for somebody in product security team, I would look for somebody who has background in development, not necessarily actually be a developer, but maybe, you know, he has uh, exposure to writing scripts or has been an infrastructure or IT member. Those would be the ideal candidates for product security. That's awesome. Now, one other interesting thing that you mentioned is that monitoring is also a part of the product security responsibility. And now I'll, I'll talk about some of the challenges that I've seen people face in these situations. So, for example, I was talking to another friend of mine who had a similar approach that, you know, the product security team should take ownership of the infrastructure stack as well. But then the challenge they ran into is when they tried to add monitoring to those things as well. The, you know, product security, a lot of the products, traditional product security people, they don't want to be on call for these things, right? They don't want to be looking at Splunk dashboards and investigations and all that stuff. Like there's a different type of people, there's a different group of people who get excited about those types of things and that's a different talent. But then the team that he had for operations and incident response and monitoring most of those folks came from more of the, the infrastructure background, right? So they wanted to look at, I don't know, TCP dumps and packets and look at uh, some of those signals and flow logs and all of those things, which is, of course, needed. But when Java Struts issue hit a few years ago, they built out some of these rules in the sim for detecting those things and asked the incident response team to watch out for it and investigate. But they didn't really understand Java. They didn't really understand the headers and the in the web APIs and all of those things, right? So it's a completely different thing. It's a mix of both of those skills. Like you got to understand applications and software, but you also have to be on call or be interested into investigations and all of those things. So I don't, I don't know if you have a solution. I was just uh, dumping my thoughts into, uh, you know, what actually happened with uh, a few of my friends. Yeah. And then it's a good challenge to solve, you know, because product security engineers want to be in their zone give me a piece of code, give me something to review, give me an architecture to review, I'll do a threat model, I'll give my requirements, and I don't necessarily is interested in what happens after the product is deployed. And I think that's the biggest learning point for us. Like once the product is deployed, how it's being used and exploited actually in the wild is where how we will learn from. Did I do my due diligence in the architecture review phase? for me to avoid that type of incident. So this is a very good learning exercise for product security engineers. And, you know, PSERT or product security incident type of activities are definitely helpful for enriching your knowledge. Like I mentioned, you know, can I go back and change something in my threat model that would avoid such issues in future? Yeah. The learning learning phase for us. Right, right. So then... If you have that perspective of product, a very simplistic view would be that, okay, origami risk is, you know, one product or multiple products, and then you look at that holistically. But I'm sure there is very complex things on the back end. There's multiple teams operating behind it, multiple services going on, multiple deployments happening. 
multiple types of risk being introduced by different types of systems and services. When you think about managing the risk of those products, how do you view, do you actually look at it from a product by product perspective or a service by service perspective or a team by team perspective or how do you measure the posture of those things? Right. And I look at it from two ways. One is how much of that product is exposed? Like what is that product or that service is doing? Is it handling your critical data? And I follow the principle of follow your customer's data. So if your system, for example, is handling the critical or the most critical data that your customer is trusting you with, then that's a priority for me. I'll go after that particular service or, or a product or an application. And the second is business context. Is my business depending on this particular functionality? Is my revenue dependent on that? Is my customer, is this is like a do or die type of situation for them. So if this particular feature or function doesn't work, the customers can't function. So I look at business context and the criticality of the feature, like how critical the data is being handled by that particular system. So I use these two ways to judge and then prioritize because you know, to, at the end of the day, you can't really secure everything, even if you want to. So how do you prioritize it? You prioritize based on your risk exposure and your business context. And risk exposure is depending upon, you know, the data it handles, whether it's exposed to internet or just an internal application, who is using it, how critical it is for client. And then again, you know, how much of risk you're willing to take on that. Yeah. So this might be a little bit interesting case for you because the company is in the business of risk management, although beyond cyber, but still risk management, right? So I'm guessing everyone would be sort of on board with managing it effectively. But when you're talking about risk-based decision-making to your peers across engineering and IT, do you have to explain to them how do you derive that risk and why did you come to that particular conclusion? Or you find it's fairly well understood within your organization? It's fairly understood within the organization. However, I like to give them the why and how we arrived. It's not just a CVS scoring or a number that I'm throwing at a vulnerability and saying that go fix it. Because when I tell my team, every vulnerability is not exploitable. Every exploitable vulnerability may not be a risk. And even if it's a risk, that may not be a you know, mission critical risk. So you have to actually go through that cycle internally. So even if my peers or my development team members are not asking how I arrived at the risk, I want to give that context to them so that they start thinking about it when they are actually designing a feature or a functionality that is perhaps you know similar or relevant. They can start thinking about those angles because it's not just security teams' responsibility; everybody else's responsibility in within the company. So nobody asks me that question, but I want to give them that context that why. And why did I arrive at that CVSS score? And what business context I added on top of the CVSS score before I said, hey, this is a critical vulnerability getting into, into our way, uh, go fix it. Right, right. That's interesting. So basically your team does the upfront work of triaging, prioritization, ensuring there is enough risk perspective being brought into an issue before communicating it to engineering. Does that scale for you? Scaling is a challenge, to be honest, in general insecurity. I wouldn't say just for this particular area, but given the nature of the processes that we follow uh, generally in security teams versus the number of people you are catering to or your stakeholders are in, 
the resources are always a challenge. You cannot scale with the number of resources. So then you become smarter and then you then prioritize, right? Your vulnerabilities in architecture phase versus your vulnerabilities in the deployment phase have to be treated differently. Because if you're saying a vulnerability is critical in architecture phase or during the design phase, the core is not even being deployed. So then that is technically not a exploitable vulnerability. So then that's how you actually balance the issues and that's how you actually report those metrics. Right, right. So talking about reporting metrics, are there specific things, specific KPIs that you figured out works really well, especially communicating externally outside of security? Yeah. And, you know, the metrics are the key part of security teams. I am big on metrics. That's some of the the, the areas I focus a lot on at Origami Risk. But from my experience, what I have seen is that, you know, you have your general metrics, right? Your critical vulnerabilities, your business group-wise vulnerabilities, how many open, how many closed. Those are normal metrics that every organization should generate. However, I feel that I'm very passionate about one metric that everybody should, and I'm encouraging, should generate is the organization's top 10 metrics. And that is based on your categorization of vulnerabilities that you may be using OS top 10 as you're categorizing vulnerabilities in. However, when you're actually doing metrics on inside, you may be seeing some different trends. You know, for example, your input validation may be your top 10 versus something else. So you have to categorize your vulnerabilities in a way where you can generate your own top 10. And how I use those top 10s is to then tailor-made the training programs for developers and for security teams. It's not just the training that's going out to the development team. It's actually also taken back within my team to make sure that did we miss something when we were reviewing it? Did we not uh, find issues at the right time? Did we not do enough pen testing? Did we not do enough design reviews? So it's not just a tailor-made training for development team, but it's also for security teams. So those top 10s actually tell you that these are your weak areas within the organization. So then you can make your training programs far better and valuable to them. Right. Now, for the dev teams, have you identified, have you found that there are certain types of trainings that work better than the others? The shorter, the better. Shorter, the better. All right. (laughs) That's one thing. And the more meaningful trainings are, the better it is. And that's how I use this, the top 10 that I talked about tailor-made the programs because sometimes you know that you are weak in certain areas and it shows in the way you work basically right and that comes out of metric so the shorter the program is the more meaningful and the valuable the program is the better it is for developers so it's not like you know you're coming in you're solving a challenge and you're forgetting about it for the rest of the year how can you learn something and then take it back into your day-to-day coding is something important in your training program. So it's not like a yearly annual compliance checkbox. Yeah. Let's get back to KPIs though. So when we are specifically talking about KPIs, let's say you're meeting somebody, you know, within your dev teams or engineering team, and you want to communicate the risk posture of a particular product or a service or what have you. Are there specific KPIs that work in communicating that, you know, you're doing well or not doing well in your experience? What has worked? In my opinion, how do you calculate risk is the base of it, right? People will ask you a question, how do you arrive at this risk being critical? What did you use? Did you use a a quantitative or qualitative method? Did you know that we have some compensating controls? 
So I think doing that homework before we actually present the risk to anybody outside of uh, our security organization is the key. You have to know where that function sits. Are there any compensating controls? Is it business critical? Is my life dependent on it? Uh, if I have to say it that way, and then present a risk a score to it. Now you can use whatever score you want to, whether it's qualitative or quantitative. At Origami, we use a very qualitative score, uh, you know, high, medium, low type of score. Mm-hmm. And then presenting that is key to the leadership. But how, what are you doing after that? You're just showing that, okay, I have risk. How do I mitigate that? Right. So a very prescribed mitigation plan is very important along with your risk metrics, right? So if I say, oh, oh, fix this, how am I going to fix it? Is it a phase-wise approach or you're telling everybody to just fix the whole platform-wide issues? That context has to be brought in. So give them some starting point, as I usually tell my team. It doesn't have to be the exact or accurate solution. Give them some starting point. Make it a phase-wise remediation plan so it's not overwhelming for the team. But take it from place A to place B and let them know how to get there. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. In terms of how these things are changing over a period of time, and since you were at a much larger company, Norton Life Lock before, and now you're at a smaller company, are there any specific changes that you've seen in terms of how security is done, product security apps like is being done at a large company versus now that you have a bigger scope, but also a more agile, more faster moving company at Origami. Yeah. So at Norton LifeLog, obviously the team was uh, larger. The Generally, the company size was larger. So obviously the security team was larger. So we had some scalability challenges. How do I scale to, let's say, you know, 200 plus application team members where we are just maybe uh, in a team of 10 people. So, you know, finding smarter solutions, finding automated solutions were would priority at not life block. But in general, if I have to compare two organizations and any two organizations, I think in my mind, the two key factors are the risk appetite and the culture of the company. I think those are the two deciding factors of basing your security program, be it product security, be it infrastructure, compliance, anything. And I take product security in three phases. You know, you have to create a baseline for your product security program based on your risk appetite, your culture, who your stakeholders are, how your release cycles are, because all of these things are different in every organization. For example, at Norton LifeLog, we used to release every two weeks as a sprint versus this is totally different for origami. So how do I then scale my program to cater to such change? So create your baseline that is bespoke for the company based on, you know, your culture, your risk appetite, your stakeholders, your release cycle, your CICD pipeline. So create that baseline. The next step of that is how do you make it scalable? Now you have established your your baseline. Can I make it scalable? You can either use more automated tools, you know, throw tools to solve a problem or throw resources to solve a problem or become smarter, solve a problem. So scalability. And then the third phase of your program is modernization. How do you modernize what you have created? And modernization not necessarily mean throwing AI-driven tools or smarter tools. Modernization could be, you know, how do I become proactive in security? So these three phases are the base of establishing the program. But what happens within each phase is depending upon the culture and the risk aspect. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I really love how you broke it down into three different sections. It gives a nice framework to think about uh, step-by-step progress. Do you feel like you have a strong security culture at your current company? Yes, everybody is, you know, security savvy, I would say. They are thinking about security at the right time. They are bringing in the security teams at the right phases of the development cycle. We are still in the establishing the program phase. Since I joined the company, I've been you know, creating a product security strategy, what the baseline looks like for origami risk, and then how do I scale it? And like I said, how do I modernize it? But the culture of the company has been amazing. Everybody wants to do the right thing in terms of security. And I think that's the best playground for any security team. It's awesome. Why do you think that is the case? Because it's typically not very frequently that I hear that the company culture and uh, is really, really pro-security and everyone wants to do better proactively. What are the reasons why uh, your company has that incorporated into the culture? Yeah, if I have to think about it, and it's a very interesting question, uh, and thank you for asking that. So if I have to think about it, I think it's the, the new members in the organization. The company was founded in 2009, so it's fairly new in the game. Security has already been established as an important sector of the industry. So I think that is one key point to consider why the company thinks security is important. And generally, I mean, we are a risk-based company. So be it a cybersecurity risk or any other risk, we have to treat everything, you know, at the same way. So because of the way we are operating or the business we are in, cybersecurity is an integral part, is an integral part of the risk management within the company and outside of the company. So I think those are the two areas where, where everybody is fully aligned. That is incredible to have, especially makes our job as security professionals slightly easier if you have alignment across the organization for driving security initiatives. Now, if you look a little bit into the future, what are some of the things that you're excited about in terms of solving exciting problems? Yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, everybody is thinking about, can I use ChatGPT tomorrow to write a script? And write some code to exploit this, or can I create a you know custom Python script to exploit something and things like that? So in my in my mind, I'm actually excited to see how AI generated tools can shape the security. How can I be proactive using artificial intelligence? I think that's where I'm excited and see the future going. Uh, can I bring that artificial intelligence early on in my cycle? Maybe even in the planning phase or design phase or even architecture phase, can I put an architecture diagram or can I throw an architecture diagram into an AI-based tool and it tells me my risks, my you know potential remediation plan and what I should do and how should I change my design? I think that's where the exciting future is. It also is challenging because if your development team is also thinking about integrating AI into their product and you know tools and the libraries, how do I scale with it? Because if the AI is driving certain behaviors in the application, how can I scale my security programs to kind of catch up with it? There is a, you know, definitely a benefit, but there's also a challenge to solve. Yeah, it will be interesting if your dev teams are building AI-based software and you're using AI to find problems in it, which gets responded back to AI software who's trying to fix it themselves. So we can sit back and drink our coffee, you know, they'll... Uh, find and fix problems themselves. No, it's fascinating. It definitely is a very exciting opportunity, right? Because there's just new things that are being done all over the place, new ways of doing things, new data flows, 
new threat vectors that are being introduced by the use of these things, that things that we had not thought about previously, but definitely exciting uh, updates in this space. Prasakta, it was a fantastic opportunity for us to host you in this podcast. Thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for having me here. I enjoyed the conversation. It was very great. Thank you, Prasakta. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.